This is a special bonus episode of Judaism Unbound, the Jewish Psychedelic Summit. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rothberg. And you may remember our conversation about a year ago with Zach Kamenetz. Remember, Zach is the rabbi who participated in the Johns Hopkins University study on psychedelics and clergy. And he has been building up ever since his organization called Shefa. Shefa has teamed up with two other organizations now, Double Blind Magazine and the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, or MAPS, to create the Jewish Psychedelic Summit, which is coming up on May 2nd and 3rd. It's two days of panels and discussions on the past, present, and future of psychedelic Judaism. The conference is going to be on Zoom, so you can join it by registering at www.jewishpsychedelicsummit.org. And the many amazing speakers include psychedelic Jewish luminaries, rabbis, therapists, mystics, and scholars. And among them are a number of former Judaism Unbound guests like Jay Michelson, Yitz Jordan, Lori Shapiro, and Amichai Lau-Lavi. As it builds itself, the Jewish Psychedelic Summit is a container for connection among the fast-growing community of scholars, mystics, and Jews from all backgrounds engaging in entheogenic practice. Our guests today, Madison Margolin and Natalie Ginsberg, are co-founders of the Jewish Psychedelic Summit. Madison Margolin is co-founder and editorial director of Double Blind Magazine, a media company and education platform at the forefront of the psychedelic movement. She's a journalist who has covered psychedelics, cannabis, drug policy, Jewish culture, and spirituality for a variety of publications, including The Village Voice, Playboy Magazine, Rolling Stone, Vice, and, of course, High Times. She speaks widely on topics ranging from social equity to cannabis feminism to drug journalism. She is a graduate of the Columbia Journalism School and the University of California at Berkeley. Our second guest, Natalie Ginsberg, is Director of Policy and Advocacy at the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, MAPS, where she works around the world to end the, quote, war on drugs by promoting research and compassionate evidence-based alternatives. Natalie Ginsberg has an MSW from the Columbia University School of Social Work and a BA in History from Yale. During her time at graduate school, Natalie Ginsberg worked as a therapist at an alternative sentencing court for those arrested for prostitution and as a guidance counselor at a Bronx middle school. She shifted her focus to policy reform as her work as a therapist led her to conclude that trauma stems from marginalization and harmful policies. Before coming to MAPS, Natalie worked to end racially discriminatory marijuana arrests and successfully legalized medical cannabis in her home state of New York. She is also co-developing a psychedelic reconciliation study working with Palestinians, Israelis, and diasporic Jews and Palestinians. Madison Margolin, Natalie Ginsberg, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to have you. Thanks for having us. So exciting to be here. So could you tell us a little bit about what the summit is all about and how, how it came to be? The summit, the really intention um, was to create a vehicle for the many, many amazing people that Madison, Rabbi Zach, and I have been meeting, both in the psychedelic world who are Jewish or in the Jewish world who are diving into the psychedelic world. So we really want to create this container and vehicle for all of these people to come together and learn from each other and kind of expand upon all of these side conversations we seem to be having over the years. And Madison and I have been working together and friends for many years as Madison covers drug policy and Judaism. And I've been the director of MAPS 
policy team for seven years. So our paths have crossed in Israel and all over and different things. And then as Rabbi Zach started Shefa, his amazing new organization dedicated to psychedelics and Judaism, his paths crossed Madison and my paths and um, this conversation continued to evolve. Madison, is is uh, drug policy and Judaism, was that two separate beats or was that already a single beat? Yeah, it kind of overlaps. I mean, I would, I grew up in sort of like a drug policy activist family. My dad has always been, since the 60s, been campaigning to legalize cannabis. And so that was sort of always like a family value, I would say. He was Timothy Leary's lawyer, may I say that for those yeah, who don't know? He was he was Timothy Leary's lawyer. He, my dad's like that hippie, you know, on one hand he's like this Hindu hippie freak who like went to India and has a Hindu name and spent time with Ramdas and Maharaji. And on the other hand, he's like a suited up like Jewish lawyer, like out to legalize weed and defending all the hippies, including Timothy Leary on a pot bust. Wow. Uh, when Leary escaped from prison on a pot bust. That's some yichus, to, to use a, a Yiddish slash Hebrew term. Um, that you've got you've got a strong lineage in this in this ecosystem you're a part of. Yeah, yeah. So it's always been sort of like I've joked like Jews and drugs have always been like what I grew up with, and I I didn't think they were the same beat. You know, I when I was in journalism school, I was in my second semester, I was um, reporting a story on like New York's cannabis uh, medical marijuana uh, legalization, which ultimately got me a job reporting on cannabis for the village voice and at the same time i was reporting a story on the overlap of judaism and psychedelics which came about because i was my first semester in journalism school i was in um in new york i was assigned to report on the ethnic beat that is the um, hasidic community and it was really hard for me to break into that community and i kept literally i went up and down Lee Avenue in Williamsburg, buying Rugelach, <laughs> trying to ask them what's happening in the community at the same time. But uh, I eventually met some some kids who were sort of on the spectrum of like OTD, like sort of off the derech, so to speak, you know, negotiating their relationship to religion. And they told me that they were doing all of these like side trans festivals, like doing acid and ketamine and all these drugs. And it, it just blew my mind to have these like black hat kids talking to me about their drug experiences and I met their dealer and all this stuff. And so I was like, wait, there's an overlap between the two things I really love, which is again, like the drug culture and stuff like that. And also the Jewish culture. So to ask how that beat came about, it's sort of, you know, through just reporting around Brooklyn and then upstate New York. Yeah. I mean, I love this question around, is it one overlapping conversation? Is it separate? I mean, we, we tend to do that with a lot of Judaism and X conversations that we have on this show. So like flagging that. But I love this summit that it's called the Jewish Psychedelic Summit. It's not like there's a bunch of Jews that happened to be interested in psychedelics. It's like owning the combination. But I am curious, what's kind of the audience here and how are you understanding the weaving work that you're doing between the two realms that are becoming one realm? I guess there's two ways that I want to answer the question is one that like Judaism is psychedelic, right? So I'd say like Judaism is an expression and a reflection of altered states. There's, you know, archaeological evidence that theogens, you know, like cannabis and other plants were used in sort of sacred uh, ceremonial ways, you know, back in biblical times. And so that was already like the rituals were built around the use of certain theogens. That's number one. Number two is I feel that 
for instance, Shabbat is a psychedelic set and setting with or without the substances. Like the setting is obvious, right? You have challah and wine and you make a nice meal and you're kind of in that. But the set, I think, is really what's more important. It's an altered state of consciousness. You know, the reason you wouldn't drive on Shabbos or do anything that's prohibited, quote unquote, is because like, imagine if you were on acid, would you really want to be driving? Like you're, you know, you're in an altered state. And the, the fact that, for instance, you can't mourn on Shabbat or you, you know, there are certain things that you really can't think about. You can't be in work mode. I think it's sort of this protective altered state of like being wrapped by like the Shekhinah or like nurturing presence of, of God. And that is altered with or without the drugs. But then to be honest, a lot of the people who are doing like deep state, like psychedelic work, in the Jewish community or in other communities are often not the people who are going on, on Zoom panels. And so, you know, I think our audience are both people who are curious about this and don't know that much about it, or maybe are Jewish people who also have psychedelic experiences and looking for ways to integrate those experiences and make sense of them through a Jewish framework. One of the main intentions of the whole conference was this weaving together both of psychedelics and Judaism with all of the layers of in, of overlap that entails, but also the weaving together of the so many different Jewish communities. You know, Madison's talking about this black hat community, you know, that has developed this interest in psychedelics, but we're also very connected to a very secular Jewish community who people are not at all connected to Judaism, but they start psychedelics and they get into like Hinduism or Buddhism. You know, we're really excited to invite them to learn about their own ancestral heritage and mystic traditions. That's a really big driver of this is definitely connecting to secular Jews, but then also connecting to other religious Jews who maybe aren't sure about this exploration. And if it's like kosher, well, we got over a dozen rabbis <laughs> to answer your questions and, and help contextualize these experiences so that they don't feel so foreign and that you can integrate them into your Jewish practice. So our aim is that our audience is wide ranging. Um, I will say that our, our summit is absolutely welcome to everyone. And we have an interfaith meetup being organized. But at the same time, it definitely was created by and for the Jewish community. And we're really excited with the opportunity to like uplift this Jewish psychedelic conversation. You know, it was an exciting thing that also helped inspire this summit that so many of the leaders of the psychedelic world and drug policy world, but even specifically psychedelic world are Jewish. Like even every day, Madison and I were like, oh, my God, that person, too. And we thought we knew all the all the Jews around. So we actually literally couldn't just invite Jewish psychedelic people. We really were like being picky with our, you know, that invite of like, who are people that actually talk about their Jewish, like what? it means to them to be Jewish, how that impacts their work. And Madison and I and Rabbi Zach too, but have been, you know, it's going to so many freaking psychedelic, like, you know, I've had seven plus years of psychedelic com conferences. So I've seen all the panels <laughs> that, you know, could be. So we really tried to make panels that did not exist elsewhere and that you couldn't find elsewhere. 
Could you give us a few examples of that, both in terms of this conference, but also for those of us who have not been to seven years of psychedelic conferences, I don't even know what the old kind of panel would be. But, um, but Dan, can... we've got seven great years ahead of us. We've got a new intention once we turn the next sabbatical cycle with Shemitah. With the... Yeah, it's very exciting. Yeah. And I was also thinking about, you know, like there was the seven years of famine in, in uh, Egypt and then the seven years of bounty. So maybe we're heading into a seven years of bounty here. But um can you talk a little bit about some of the panels that you're really excited about that are coming up at the summit and you know who some of the people are and and what do you expect I mean like what do you what are you hoping really comes out of these panels that you've designed that that hasn't been coming out of the panels for the last 7 years When you're like what are all these other conferences about there's so many panels about psychedelic therapy and what that looks like and how that works which is wonderful and important but I'm really excited that we have a panel called What is Jewish Trauma and Psychedelic Therapy, or Jewish Trauma and Psychedelic Therapy, What is Culturally Informed Care? Um, and that's a conversation I've never seen before. We've had conversations about culturally informed psychedelic therapy that have focused around patients of color, but not specifically around Jewish traumatic experience. And I'm really hopeful that therapists who are even non-Jewish might watch this panel working with Jewish clients and it could really help inform them. Um, because especially in the psychedelic state, you're very vulnerable to all different things from microaggressions to like you might be seeing a, an image that you don't have, you know, religious context for or whatever it is. So that's the panel I'm pretty excited about. Natalie's moderating the, the trauma panel and I'm moderating a panel called Why Do Jews Go to India? And it sort of explores both the um, the phenomenon of the countercultural Jews who went to India in the 60s and 70s and, you know, were with Ram Dass and kind of came to India searching for a form of, of spirituality that they didn't really get in this sort of post-Holocaust, very dry version of Long Island Judaism or wherever they're coming from. And I think there's a lot of internalized anti-Semitism that I've seen. I'm reading about it in this posthumous memoir by Ram Dass and also I see it in my father. And then there's also the phenomenon of Israelis who go to India after the army. And I think it's a really interesting dialectic between the different types of Jewish trauma and like this dialectic between seeking and escape. And how, it, how does that all come together in sort of this also very spiritually charged place? We should also explain that Ram Dass was uh, born a Jewish person. And, and, His name uh, was Richard Alpert. Right, Richard Alpert, and he was a he was a professor at Harvard, and and then he ultimately left and uh, went on his journey and became Ramdas. His father also was a founder of Brandeis, I think. Um, we also have uh, panels on like what is Jewish shamanism, and you know another panel on like Jewish mysticism, and really that kind of goes hand in hand. Is like there are aspects of the Jewish religion that in and of themselves, you know, feel psychedelic. You know, there's a book by Rabbi Gershon Winkler, who's on the shamanism panel, and he wrote Magic of the Ordinary, which shows that Judaism is more of an earth-based tradition. Again, there's all sorts of like mystical, meditative, prophetic, shamanistic rituals that are part of our tradition that I think if people actually knew about them, um, would be a lot more into Judaism than the really mm -hmm. lame version of Judaism that I, a lot of us got in Hebrew school or, you know, kind of whatever type of Jude Jewish education that has failed a lot of people. I love the framing of of Long Island, Long Island dry Judaism. My dad's from Long Island. I I, I don't have any shade I need to throw at Long Island. It's part of me, and he actually has very fond memories of growing up there. At the same time, I, I know what you're getting at, and I want to sit with that and and tie it 
to what you've been talking about with like, there kind of are these mystic practices of Judaism that are, that are right there, that, that aren't so hidden if you're, if you're looking. And I think that for a variety of reasons, people are sometimes sort of taught not to know about those things. Other times, they know about them, maybe rabbis know about these things, but for whatever reason, we feel like, we feel this pressure that Judaism is supposed to feel more like intellectual and, and less embodied. And for the 20th century, certainly, Jews didn't want to come off as like too into these bodily rituals or whatever. And there was a lot of effort to sort of push those sides of the tradition aside, but like they're there. And so I'm curious how you relate to that because on the one hand, entheogens in one way or another, we can find antecedents for them for a long time. And we can point to like ancient eras where they may have been more and less involved. To what extent is the claim that like you're sort of recovering a set of Jewish things that have been there all along. And to what extent are, because I feel this too, are you kind of making the claim like, we're in a moment right now that is a, a new kind of moment and maybe with its own potential that isn't just about tying it to the past. Like, how are you thinking about the oldness, the newness? Um, one of you used the phrase altered state before and alter in Yiddish means elder or old, like the old thing. I'm going to start using that as a pun. Thank yeah, you. That's a good one. I'm happy to seed puns all day long. Yeah. I don't know. I, I first of all, I think both. We're both trying to recover ancient traditions and create new ones. So that's something that's important. But all the reasons we've disconnected from all of these traditions over the last thousands of years has almost always been because of persecution and anti-Semitism and a, a survival. And even in this last 20th century, right, like post-Holocaust, like there's still a lot of what's surviving, what kind of people we need to be to fit in and we're not these weirdo other things. So I know there's just so, so much richness lost um, because of the, you know, fleeing around the world and burning things and hiding things. And to that end, um, a lot of women, Jewish women actually practiced a lot of these more embodied and mystical traditions. And of course, um, you know, the more heady male written versions of things kind of took precedence over the oral traditions. And yeah, so that's a big thing we're hoping to reconnect to. And as you said, stuff is literally hidden in freaking plain sight. Like the Torah mentions Kine Bosom, and then it's translated as a fragrant flower, which, you know, isn't, I agree with that translation, but it's not all the way there. Um, and I know you said to make sure with Hebrew words for everything for listeners, im, the word like is plural in Hebrew. So cannabis im literally is like a plural of cannabis written in the Torah. So we see a lot of these things in the Talmud. There's many mentions of using mushrooms that are separate from eating. It's like not a prayer you say for eating. Like this is a separate prayer when you put mushrooms in your mouth. Or like there's just so much there again that's in plain sight. And I guess I'll just end on the Ketoret idea in the Torah, that how often are we reading the Torah and it says, burn this very special mixture of substances and God will appear. And, and then they describe a holy hot box, how to make sure it's enclosed space. So when you burn it, <laughs> you're like hot boxing. That's a great point. I mean, what's, what's funny is I remember growing up, there's, there's a prayer towards the end of services that I think nobody really pays attention to because you're like ready to go and eat snacks afterwards. Um, Ein Kelohenu, which, you know, without going into what it is, it has a little verse at the end that a lot of communities cut 
they do all the other verses, but the verse at the end specifically shouts out to that Katorah, to that burning up in smoke, Katorah has some meme, and, and a bunch of communities for the reasons that we're talking about weren't, they didn't want to keep that verse. They just wanted to keep the verses that are like, God is cool, God is cool, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's just a, a thought. But, but you, you, you brought up gender, and I really want to go there because in looking at the speaker, at, I don't know, roster, at, at, at looking at the amazing speakers that you have, there is a rich diversity gender-wise. And I think that when we talk about psychedelics, especially in that 20th century history, you know, Timothy Leary is a big name. And Jewishly, we talk about Zalman Shakhtar Shlomi. We talk about some other like male rabbis or male leaders of the Chavarah movement sometimes, or like, like men, pretty much. And it really is important if this is going, if this is going to be, I don't know, a movement moving forward in one way or another, that it's not that it doesn't continue in that way. So I'm curious what your reflections were like in sort of bringing the, bringing the conference together on that front and and to some extent like what we need to still do on that front to make this conversation about psychedelics Jewishly and otherwise not just a masculine leaning conversation. I mean, I say this because uh, ha- I believe it's true. There can't possibly be a time where there were more like women rabbis, <laughs> you know, in this history. So it's also just exciting that there's so many women engaging more publicly in a way that they have before. And on the psychedelic front, the same thing goes. Even when you were mentioning all of these leaders from the 60s and 70s, I'm only finding out now, seven years into my work, that there were Jewish women pioneers back then, too, doing epic work, whose just names weren't all the way out there. But in the psychedelic field, like so many others, so many of the women who were leading, their names weren't out there. And they also weren't as interested in going or traveling, promoting it. Like many of them had families, were, you know, balancing the, all of their amazing work with other things in their life. Um, so yeah, we are really trying to change that and create context where women can be mothers and live family lives and speak and share their knowledge so that they can inspire other women like us. So we don't have to go tracing down to find out that there really were a lot of other women before us. And there've been critiques of, particularly I've seen about Timothy Leary, that he wasn't, you know, as responsible as he ought to have been, regardless of the question of whether entheogens should ever have been used. You know, even people who believe yes are not necessarily Timothy Leary's greatest fans. But I want to talk about, as you see it, that period of time when LSD and and the various substances that we're talking about had their sort of first flowering of redemption, let's say. And, and it was kind of, uh, you know, it was kind of snuffed out. And as we reflect on that, can you talk a little bit about you know, kind of what you think was motivating the folks back then and whether you think that something has really changed now or this is just another effort that's in real danger of being snuffed out. And if the latter, what is it that you're hoping can be done to try to reach a different solution? So I want to say that what I think we're experiencing now is on par with at least in scale as the Jewish renewal movement. Like that was you know, a real solidified movement. And I think we're seeing right now the psychedelic Jewish movement at scale. And this conference reflects that. And I think it's only going to get bigger. You know, back then, it's hard to separate like the Jewish movements from also the countercultural movements that were taking place. And so I also want to point out that concurrently, like while 
Leary was, or sorry, while, while Ram Dass was going to India and, you know, there was the whole Hindu movement, you know, Hindu Buju movement. Um, there were also scholars like Art Green, um, who were doing a lot of work looking at like the relationship between Kabbalah and LSD. And there also was a sort of hippie Baltshuva movement at the time. You know, you get that a lot in the Karlebach movement or, you know, you know, a lot of people who spent time on Moshav Modi'in in Israel who, you know, were into the Grateful Dead and they kind of got religious and, and, you know, there are these cute Grateful Dead, uh, Jewish Grateful Dead had slogans like LSD, let's start davening or POT put on to fill in. And I think there's sort of a relationship between the psychedelics and getting more spiritually in tune. And so again, for Ramdas, that was kind of a pretty, um, you know, the, people know the story, right? Like he was at Harvard with Leary. Le they kind of went in two separate directions after they were expelled from Harvard. Leary almost wanted to start his own religion based in LSD and it was all turn on, tune and drop out. And he really represented like this defiance of authority and like think for yourself and, and really, and use acid to get there. Whereas Ram Dass kind of was, he, he's like, you come up and you come down. Like what is a sustainable way to integrate the, the ethos of psychedelic and spiritual experience? And that's what he learned with Maharaji, his guru in India for all the sort of disillusioned Jewish youth who grew up in this kind of very dry post Holocaust, maybe even with their own internalized anti-Semitism, right? Like it wasn't, as cool to be Jewish at that time, especially if you were sort of in more secular spheres. The thing is, though, what they were seeking out in Hinduism and Buddhism, you know, does exist within Judaism. And Ramdas, you know, I think also returned to his own Jewish roots at different points throughout his life. He was friends with Reb Zalman, you know, in his book, Being Ramdas, he talks about like, you have your Dharma, you have your karma in that you know, you're born, you're, it's not, it's no accident what you're born into. And so he recognized that he was born a Jew. He was born into this tribe. Like, what does that mean for him? And some Grateful Dead uh, radio station interviewed me for also about the conference. And I think the thing is, it's like the psychedelics really do turn you on. And so Ramdas tells me this story where he was in Jerusalem and these two like black hat boys came up to him and they're like, Ramdas, it's you. We read Be Here Now and we got into psychedelics and then we got from orthodoxy. And so I think that, um, again, like I see that as that's a very common story that I see. And I see currently what, what we're seeing is sort of this meeting in the middle where people who come from secular environments do psychedelics and then they start seeking spiritually. And now because the the evidence of Jewish mysticism is more available maybe than it was in the 60s and 70s, they might come to Judaism. Also for people who are growing up in more religious environments, and maybe that didn't work for them, they also have their own psychedelic experiences. And that too helps them make peace with Judaism. And, and so it's this, again, a very interesting coming together in the middle from people of all different types of Jewish backgrounds over psychedelics. And I'll try to give uh, my perspective, uh, the MAPS perspective of that, which MAPS, you know, where I've worked for seven years, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. My boss, MAPS founder, Rick Doblin, also actually psychedelic Jew, very inspired by his Ju Judaism to do this work. He saw the um, all of the research getting shut down that, you, Dan, you were just asking about what happened to that first you know, wave. And Rick saw that and saw it get, getting criminalized with no scientific basis. Um, with MDMA in particular, 
it was actually scheduled later than other substances. It was only made illegal in the early 80s, actually mid 80s, 85. And it was used first as a drug in therapy. Actually, another psychedelic Jew back in the day, Leo Zeff, um, was one of the first therapists to start using MDMA after he was introduced to it. And he used it for couples therapy, for phobias, for all different things. And it was really um, quite popular among therapists, but it was just a therapy drug. Then someone decided, decided to re-market it. It was called Adam at the time and to call it um, ecstasy and market it to the club scene in Dallas. And then from there, use took off. And then the DEA, this was just when the war on drugs was escalating. So the DEA took note and was like, nope, we're scheduling this. And that's when Rick, our MAPS founder, organized a bunch of actually religious leaders, doctors, scientists to write letters to the DEA and say, like, there's no basis for scheduling this. And they had a two-year court case. And the DEA agreed with them and said, you're right, we don't have any scientific basis to make this schedule one. But then the head of the DEA rejected the judge ruling and said, no, it's illegal, schedule one. And so that was really the basis that Rick said, okay, well, we're going to do FDA-approved clinical research so that you can't just willy-nilly make up that this shouldn't be in that. So when you ask, are we? do we have the same fears as we did back then? I don't. I, I do have some fears. I don't think it's going to be the easiest path forward all the time. Um, but I'm really proud and confident in our strategy of doing really rigorous research. And not just us. There have been now many, many other groups doing rigorous psychedelic research. So we the government and others won't have the same ability just to brush it off because though there was a lot of research before it wasn't quite as rigorous and there wasn't clinical trials and all these different things that made it easier to dismiss where i am most concerned looking forward is actually pharmaceutical companies um alcohol companies tobacco companies they're the ones already getting into cannabis um and you know with our psychedelic therapy treatment you know you could only need two or three sessions instead of having to take pills every day for 20 years so we're really going to hopefully be cutting into pharma psychiatric products so I could see them really um, having issue with that. And we already see, you know, for-profit psychedelic companies trying to like patent different molecules and, and how to get you to kind of buy more of that. Like, so there, there's plenty to be keep our eyes on out there. But I'm confident that we're going to not fall back as much as we did last time. When I think about one more layer that people... In Jewish life, I think, feel some concerns about psychedelics. I think that there's this idea, psychedelics, ah, that's an individual experience. That's how people talk about it. I don't, I'm not convinced that's how it goes. But like, I think there's this sense that, ah, you know, Judaism is collective and we do things together and you need to have 10 people to pray and, you need, and all of this. And, and the idea that people without setting foot in a synagogue without participating in an institution necessarily of Jewish life, that they could decide on, I have, a, I have you know, somebody I know who does this, like on a holiday, they're not going to go to synagogue. They're, they're going to drop acid and they're going to experience a deep Jewish experience. Say, it's not impossible to do both and both go to synagogue and maybe some medicine. That's, that's helpful. That's definitely helpful. But like, let's say, for example, though, just the people that are actually going to not be that involved in like traditional Jewish life, but they would create 
experiences for themselves using substances that feel deep, feel Jewish, feel holy, feel sacred. Like, I think there's folks who often are involved in Jewish life who are nervous about that and and who will respond like, oh, well, sure, they're getting an individual experience, but Judaism is about community, right? And on this podcast, we've talked over and over again about that tension between individual experience and collective identity. And I've said there is a way in which this is individual. We need we need experiences of Judaism that are so transcendent. They're like, oh my gosh, I just I just changed. I am a different person. We actually need those. And I'm I'm not here to say that psychedelics are the only way to get to that, but they are a successful way that a lot of people have gotten to that. And this is a big old conference with hundreds of people signed up. This is not just an individual thing. This is, I think, descriptively at this point, a movement of people. And so the fact that people might experience this individually or with a couple friends, I don't think that takes away from the ways in which this can build a communal kind of movement. So I'm curious, like, how do you relate to those questions of like individual transcendent experience that come up versus collective identity? And how would you respond to those folks that are ready to say like, oh, sure, this is whatever, but it's it's never going to be the same as having a collective Jewish group? I just want to point out that there are collective Jewish groups that are doing psychedelics together, whether that's in, you know, in the States, in New York, people doing ayahuasca together, you know, singing Naganam. And in Israel also, I've heard of different Jewish groups. Natalie also, you know, there's, there's a um, studies coming out soon on that. Yeah, there's, I mean, Natalie, if you want to talk about that for a second, the, the Jewish Palestine. Yeah, I'm um, collaborating with Dr. Lior Roseman and Antoine Saka. We're publishing a paper interviewing Israelis and Palestinians who drink ayahuasca together. Psychedelics, we may be in the Western concept, think of it as this individual experience, but the truth is that the vast majority of indigenous communities who sit with medicines do it in group context. So the idea of a minion, like, you know, you have to have like 10 people to sit in. Like, I can see that being part of a Jewish psychedelic retreat or ceremony that it is about that community. Um, but I think to also to your question that, you know, the powerful thing about psychedelic experiences, even as an individual, you often have a communal experience. Like I often feel really connected to my ancestors, to other Jewish people, to other family, to like to the whole world, to every plant, every animal, like different levels of, of experience. But I think that's important to keep in mind that it's not like you're just like going in yourself away from people. But even when you do have an individual experience, it's often a, about connection and then allows you to connect um, when you're not in that individual state. Um, but I do see that that fear of question. And that's why, yeah, Madison and I talk a lot about group explorations, especially around holidays and time and all of that. Um, and we think so many of the Jewish holidays are pretty awesome containers, like Sukkot, for example. Like, did you know that Etrog has DMT in it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that like, you know, in Judaism, there's a tradition also for like individual prayer, like Hidbodedut. And so there is, uh, you know, Hidbodedut meaning, you know, kind of like this one-on-one -on -one meditation and con contemplation and conversation with God. You kind of see this specifically with Breslov Hasidim in, in Israel, who like go into the forest and just like scream out at Hashem. And, you know, that's an individual uh, activity. Maybe in your standard shoal, you're not, there is not always that guy who's like tripping in the corner by himself. 
Um, but there really are, and this this is again more underground work, but there are people who are talking about doing Jewish retreats um, that include entheogens and mushrooms. And, you know, even here in LA, I, I have friends who are doing Jewish mushroom prayer circles and they're playing Jewish music and taking people from the religious community and the secular community. And this is happening and it really feels more Jewish than, or more, um, Hamish and like spiritually uh, invigorating than anything I've ever felt in Shul specifically. As a closing practical note, um, how many people have signed up for this? Like, what what's it looking like? I mean, I know we've still got a little bit of time before the conference starts. We sold 350 tickets and maps hasn't like posted yet. So we haven't even done some of our bigger promos. So we're hopeful we'll probably we're expecting around five like a little over 500 is the number that's been coming up for me but we we shall see speaking of community multiple people saying i thought i was crazy and the only one making these connections and like just people like can't even speak i've had a few calls with presenters that are just like i'm literally at a loss for words seeing all these people come together so that's like one of the greatest gifts of doing that that i really feel like we're just getting to connect the community that way but um yeah it's been and it's also been beautiful to see the vast majority of people buying our tickets so far have been student and lower income so just knowing that it's a lot of young folks and folks that like that's just been a cool thing to conceive of i'll even just mention because it's been particularly cool to see a really large number of non-binary and trans young jewish folks following that like very proudly in their bio talk about their Judaism and their gender identity. Um, so I'm just excited to see what all of these folks do as they're learning and, and growing up and helping us integrate Judaism and psychedelics. I really think it's a sacred service that you're doing to people, helping them to realize that they are part of a, a really broad collective of people, even if for various reasons they haven't been shown that in the past. So just thank you so much to both of you for joining us. This has been a really fantastic conversation. Thank you. It's been so fun. Thank you so much. And of course, also thanks to all of you out there for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this bonus episode and we hope that you'll tune into more episodes in the future. We usually end our show by telling you all the ways you can be in touch with Judaism Unbound, with us. We're going to close instead by just encouraging you to register for this Jewish Psychedelic Summit. You can do so at jewishpsychedelicsummit.org. A reminder that it's taking place May 2nd to 3rd. Uh, if you're struggling to find it, just Google Jewish Psychedelic. It's one of the first results. Uh, if you're still struggling, go to our website, judaismunbound.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode. And we've got all the links that you need. We really think that this is going to be a great time. I registered. Would love to see you there. Uh, it's going to be fun. So thank you so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound. <laughs>